Hosea 13, Israel's idolatry, pride, and God's wrath against Israel's pride. Verse 1, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from the silver, from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king? that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested. Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Amen. We've got mostly here God showing them their sin of idolatry, reminding them of what he has done for them, yet in their pride they would not be grateful and obey God and believe in his word. Therefore, God will punish them in his wrath. That's essentially what's here. We do have one verse, one verse of hope, that is in verse 14, 13, 14, cited by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen, fifty-five. Otherwise, this is a chapter and a section that is both explaining their sin and explaining the punishments. Verse 1, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. Ephraim, or Israel, 
Ephraim, a tribe in the north. Initially, it says in verse 1, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. This may be a reference to the initial leadership and godliness of the tribe in the days of Joshua. At that time, in the days of Joshua, this tribe, they did follow, and even Joshua himself, he uh, lived in that tribe and died in that tribe. Not only did that happen in Joshua 24, Joshua 24, it explains where Joshua lived and died. And it was in the tribe or territory of Ephraim. It says that in 24 verse 30, 2430 in the hill country of Ephraim. Not only did he do so, but also Eleazar and Phineas, they also dwelt the priest. It says in verse 33, Joshua 24:33, and Eleazar the son of Aaron died and they buried him at Gibeah of Phineas his son which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. These two major figures of the people in the time of Joshua and the conquest, they were faithful and Ephraim inherited that kind of faithfulness. So initially, there was trembling before God. There was the fear of God, in other words, initially. Also, speaking of that initial initial trembling or fearing before God, Joshua chapter 4 Joshua 4, 14. 4, On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. They revered Joshua. They did the right thing initially, which is characteristic of faith. But I keep saying initially, why? Because it's temporary, and he's going to describe it as temporary in a moment. But even true faith has fear and trembling. That is a component of true faith. Philippians two twelve and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians two twelve and 13 explain that very truth. We will see that it was temporary. Verse 1, he exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. I think that this exaltation in the first part, because of the word but, the transition, the transition but shows that he exalted himself by his trembling at the start, but he didn't continue in that trembling because he worshiped idols And he did wrong and died by worshiping idols. That is, when we worship idols, it's sin or wrong before God, and it produces death. Sin produces death. Just there in that one phrase, we have um, Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin produced death. Or Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Or also Romans 5.12, speaking of the original sin, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
That's what they did. That's what sin always does. It produces death. However, they weren't satisfied. As sin is insatiable, sin cannot be appeased. Sin will always grow like cancer, fatal cancer. Verse 2, and now they sin more and more, more and more. It's not enough to be content and satisfied with some sin. They want to do more. This is characteristic of sin and sinners. They want more and more. It's hard for them to resist. And manifested in making idols, molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. Here, they take their precious metals, their valuables in their house, they give it to a craftsman, a silversmith, and the silversmith makes it into an idol. They can take a little bit of their silver, go to the silversmith, get it made into an idol, bring it to their house, worship the idol in their house, and then pray to the idol to ask for more silver and gold, possessions, property. And the devotion, look at this devotion. Let the man who sacrificed kiss the calves. Idolaters actually do this. They do actually approach their idols, whether dead idols, like here, molten images, or living idols, and they approach and kiss them. They kiss them in worship, such as animals. They will kiss cows. They'll kiss horses. They'll, they'll kiss whatever animal that they worship. That happens. Verse 3. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. All of these analogies, the morning cloud is temporary. The morning dew soon disappears. The chaff, when it is time for the wheat to be threshed and to be separated from the chaff, when the wind is blowing, it easily, it quickly blows it away. And then like smoke from a chimney, we see it for a moment and then it disappears and dissipates into the air. That's the way these people were. That's the way fake faith is. It's temporary. This is the, similar to the parable of the sower, seed, and soils of Matthew 13, 1 to 23, Mark 4, 1 to 20, and Luke 8, 5, uh, Luke 8, 4 to 15. Luke 8, 4 to 15. Perhaps the Lucan version would be the clearest in explaining how temporary and fickle false faith is. Verse 4. They shouldn't have been this way. They had everything. Verse 4. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. God took care of them from the land of Egypt. He took care of them in Egypt. He protected them mostly protected them from the plagues. 
Then he protected them in the wilderness. He protected them from foreign enemies. He gave them the land of Canaan. They conquered the land of Canaan. And what did God say? What was his stipulation? Verse 4. And you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. All I asked was that you worship me. Don't worship any other gods. Not a single God or numerous gods. Don't worship any other God. Just worship me. Just trust in me. Believe that I am your Savior. That was it. Simple enough, right? In verse 5, I cared for you, or literally, I knew you, such as knowing intimately, knowing intimately, caring intimately. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. That's easy to see from Exodus and Numbers, where there are many examples of God caring for them in the desert. In the desert, he cared for them, provided food, uh, bread, manna, daily, water, meat, whatever they needed. Verse 6, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. It seems now in verse 6, he's describing their wonderful abundant provision in the land of Canaan. He's describing what God provided for them in Canaan under Joshua, and yet they became proud and forgot him. And they shouldn't have done that. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. In verses 1 to 10, God explains how he had provided in the wilderness and will provide in the land of Canaan. We could pick it up at verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. He's about to provide this great abundance, and when they eat, they are supposed to bless the Lord. Once you have enjoyed the goodness, it should be on the mind to bless God, to praise God, to thank God for what he's given. Verse 11, this is the problem which Hosea is explaining. Verse 11, beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. This is what Hosea is saying. What Moses preached against, now Hosea is saying, now you're actually doing it. 
Verse 15, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint in the wilderness. He fed you manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, (coughs) if they're not thankful, if they are proud, if they're not humble and thankful and praise God, Verse 17, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And that's what they thought. They did it, not God. Because they thought that way, Hosea 13, 7. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. God describes himself as a lion, a leopard, a bear, a lioness, and a wild beast which all of the above are, but any other wild beast, just in case people think they can conquer any wild beast. They can't. And God describes himself that way. God is that kind of animal of prey pouncing on not the domesticated lambs, sheep, cows, Horses, not the domesticated ones, but other wild animals. God describes himself as being the king of all of these wild animals, and he's going to pounce on them. He's going to eat whatever he wants. Who's doing it? God is. Yes, he will use foreigners, the Assyrians, in the case of the northern kingdom. He will use them. But it's ultimately God doing it. God punishes by means. He punishes by instruments and agents that he raises up. This is the God of the Bible, even the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Even the Old Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we have to mention the Son, in Revelation 5, 5, Revelation 5, 5, who is called the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The lion who is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is described as that. In Revelation 6, 16, Jesus is also described. Revelation 6, 16. It says, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide from us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus has wrath. He's also a lamb that has tremendous strength. Revelation 19 Revelation 19, 11. 11 and following. Revelation 19, 11 to 21. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Who is this one on the white horse? He will be identified as Christ. But when he wages war and judges, it's in righteousness. So don't disdain it. Don't be bitter and harsh against God. Verse 12, And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit upon them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is God in Christ. God in Christ. Christ is doing all of this. And sending forth his angels to accomplish it. We must have a proper view of Christ and the God of the Bible. Uh, Hosea, Hosea 13, 9. Hosea 13, 9. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. They are against their helper. How in the world can they be against their helper and not think that destruction will come? When people are so blinded by sin... They're so engrossed and enthralled with their sin, they don't understand that the, their great helper will also be their great judge, bringing destruction. That's the irony. Verses 10 and 11, God's mercy or his grace and his wrath. Verse 10, where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. Now he's mocking them, actually. Verse 10, he's reminding them of the mercy he gave them, the grace he gave them. But now at the same time, he's mocking them, ridicule, ridiculing them by saying, where is this king and where are the princes and judges you demanded at what point did they demand that? First Samuel chapters 8 to 12 is when they demanded it. And then 1 Samuel 13 to 31 
That's when God removed him. 1 Samuel 8 to 31. All of those chapters. At first, they requested or demanded a king, for a, have a, a king like all the nations. And God said, okay, you want, you've asked for one, I'll give you one. I, I'm upset with you, I'm angry at you. Verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger. You wrongfully, with malicious motives, demanded a king of me, and in wrath I gave you a king. Mercy and wrath mixed. I gave you a king and took him away in my wrath. That's also describing Saul. When Saul sinned in 1 Samuel 13, God said that he has taken the kingdom away from him and given it to his neighbor who is better than him and someone who has a desire to walk after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. That's when God said, okay, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, the dynasty, everything away from you. And eventually that happens when Saul and three of his sons died in battle in 1 Samuel 31. So that whole section is really what is summarized in verses 10 and 11. 1 Samuel chapters 8 to 31. Verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Israel's sin is bound up and it's stored up. If it's bound up, one day it will be unbound. If it is stored up, one day it's going to be open. The storehouse of sin will be opened and exposed. Then he uses another analogy, both of childbirth and uh, sonship. He says, the pains of childbirth come upon him. Don't you realize that you are full with child and your pains are about to come? Why won't you deal with it? Why won't you deal with it? And then in terms of not being a wise son, being a foolish son, God adopted Israel as his son from the book of Exodus. Exodus 4, he adopted Israel as his son. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Exodus 4, 22. He adopted them that way, but they don't behave like his son. Deuteronomy 32. Moses taught them this song to remind them that this is their nature. Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 6. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because 
of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. On the one hand, they're not truly his sons. They're not truly his children, verse 5. On the other hand, they are because he adopted them since the land of Egypt. So in terms of access to the word of God, in terms of being the covenant people, they joined in a covenant with Moses in the time of Moses. In that sense, they were adopted as his people. But in truth, in heart, in faith, in obedience, did they really believe the gospel? No. That's why he says in Deuteronomy 32, 5, you're not really my children. You're my children superficially. You're not my children substantially in your heart. Hosea says the same. Verse 14. 14 is hope, grace, anticipation in the middle of all of this judgment. God does this sometimes, more many times actually. Sometimes it'll be a paragraph or part of a chapter or a full chapter. At other times, when he is indicting them for their sins and explaining their punishment, he puts a ray of hope in there so that when hearing this oracle, one is not overburdened by the crushing weight of the judgment. And who will benefit from hearing about this grace and mercy? His people, the elect, the believers. Verse 14, what is it? Resurrection. Resurrection. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. The first part, the first four clauses, there's five clauses here, um, or we could say A, B, C, D, E. Um, I will, I will, those are the first two. And then the two questions, O death, O Sheol. And then the fifth one, compassion will be hidden from my sight. This is cited, quoted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start at 54. 54 to 58. The whole chapter is the chapter on resurrection, the central major chapter of the whole Bible on the resurrection. And we pick it up at 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The apostle here, he celebrates victory by citing Hosea 13, 14. Victory over death, victory over the afterlife, the place of the afterlife, Sheol, that will not conquer us when we are raised from the dead. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at the fifth part or E, if we want to use the letter, section E of Hosea thirteen fourteen. Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Either he is going back and saying that he's going to not grant compassion to the wicked, or in 14, if this word compassion is translated regret, regret will be hidden from my sight then the regret would be towards the believers, the elect, meaning that he's not going to be miserly about this great victory and grace that he gives to them. He's not going to regret doing so when he does so for his people. He won't have any regret in being so good and kind to us on the day of resurrection. 15, 15 and 16. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Sometimes when one flourishes or a plant flourishes among the reeds, the wind comes and the water there, the water supply is not enough. If the wind is strong enough, it may take away the water, the water supply. The east wind, the east wind in Israel would be a wind coming from the desert. It will be very, very hot and it's going to dry up everything in its path, the east wind. But the wind actually belongs to God. The wind belongs to God, and God is the one that comes up from the wilderness. He's going to dry up all of the fountains, all of the springs, and he's going to plunder every precious article that they have. He's going to take it all away. Whatever abundance they have, God will take it all away. Suddenly, it'll happen. Suddenly, it will disappear. The sudden nature of the disappearance of all that they enjoy, all that people enjoy, is also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll read the judgment part in verses 1 to 4. 
1 to 4. If we continue reading through verse 11, it would be an exhortation to us not to be like this. But the judgment part in verses 1 to 4. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. When people have supposed peace and safety, lasting peace and safety, suddenly it'll disappear because God's judgment will come on them. That's why Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And everything held dear by man will disappear. 16. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Samaria was the capital of Israel. And when he mentions Samaria, he's not just mentioning the inhabitants of Samaria. He is also calling out the king of Samaria whose palace is in Samaria. He's calling out the king, the court officials, all of the corrupt officials, the judges, the courts, everything. He's calling them out and he's saying they will be held guilty because they have rebelled against their God. They're going to fall by the sword. So the most powerful among them in 16a will die by the sword. Their kings and their soldiers will die. But also, the most vulnerable among them, the pregnant women. He says that the enemies will be so heinous and vicious against your pregnant women, the most vulnerable, the most helpless among you, that they are going to take your little children and dash them in pieces and rip open the pregnant women, therefore killing them and their child in the womb. The wicked enemy will do this. It's not the first time Hosea said this. He said it in 9.16. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. I will slay the precious ones of the womb. And then 10.14, therefore a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. This is the gruesome, bloody end of sin. It encompasses everyone. It will catch everyone. The most powerful 
and the least powerful among us all. So what should we do? Not worship idols, not be proud, not forget what God has done for us, always be thankful, and be hopeful in the day of resurrection, that the day of resurrection will be a victory for us and not misery for us, because there is a resurrection of the wicked also, and the wicked will experience eternal misery. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.